I'm Shannon Green, and you're listening to On Extremism, a podcast that takes a deep dive into the causes, manifestations, and responses to one of the most important issues of our time. In this series, we'll talk to top experts, policymakers, and practitioners to understand how we can better counter violent extremism around the world. Our podcast is made possible by the CSIS Commission on Countering Violent Extremism, chaired by former British Prime Minister Tony Blair and former U.S. Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta. For more information on the commission, please visit www.csis.org. I'm very pleased to introduce today's guest, Mark Penn, President and Managing Partner of the Stagwell Group and Commissioner on CSIS's Commission on Countering Violent Extremism. Mark Penn served as White House pollster to President Bill Clinton for six years and was a key advisor in his 1996 re-election campaign and second term in office. Mr. Penn also served as chief strategist to Hillary Clinton during her Senate campaigns and her 2008 presidential run. He was also the executive vice president and chief strategy officer at Microsoft, where he was responsible for working on core strategic issues across Microsoft's products, value propositions, and investments, and leading the company's competitive research and analysis. Finally, Mark is the author of the best-selling book, Microtrends, and is a guest lecturer at Harvard. Mark, it's so nice to have you here with us today. Great to be here. Great. So you're here to talk about the poll that we did as part of the CSIS CVE Commission on global perceptions on countering violent extremism. Tell us a little bit about the poll. Where did we do it? How many people were surveyed? Just sort of the basics of the methodology itself. Well, I think it's the most extensive poll uh, that I know of ever done on violent extremism. And of course, it was done in eight countries, including the US, uh, UK, uh, China, uh, Turkey, India, um, Indonesia. And so that we got a a mix across both Western countries uh, and France as well, Western countries and also Muslim majority countries so that we could compare the two. And we did almost 8,000 interviews uh, on the internet. So in some countries like Egypt, where we also did the poll, the, the sample was limited by the percentage of people who were uh, had access to the internet. Uh, but I think it's a very good indicator of what public opinion, and particularly leading public opinion, is in those countries. And why do you think it was so important to do this survey as part of the commission's information gathering role and analysis in developing its recommendations? Well, I think initially when we put the survey together, we were looking at uh, what did uh, people, particularly Americans in the West, uh, look at in terms of the what's happening with violent extremism, how serious an issue it was, and what kinds of policies they, they might support. But actually, we ended up e- expanding the survey really to take a look more generally, too, in the Muslim-majority countries, how they perceive the problem and to understand how different citizens of different countries really see the problem unfolding, how they speak about it, and how they think about it. So that's a great segue, because my first question on the substance is, overall, how did the people surveyed perceive the threat of violent extremism? Well, I I think that violent extremism is now one of the most major problems across all these countries. Uh, there, There were several countries where it's even the number one problem, 
But you'd certainly say that between the economy, uh, corruption in some of in some of these societies, and violent extremism, that those are, are probably the three big problems that most people in most of these countries think they're facing. And did they perceive the problem as getting worse, getting better, staying about the same? Could you detect a trend line? Well, in, in general, uh, things are not one of the top problems unless they're deteriorating, uh, unless there's a lot of public concern uh, for it. And, and so, so the poll really did, did show that people thought it was getting worse and that if unchecked, people thought violent extremism would eventually lead to uh, violent extremist groups getting weapons of mass destruction. Uh, so they thought that probably, the, if unchecked, the problem could lead to the destruction of the world. Uh, and on the other hand, there was actually a surprising amount of optimism, 90% uh, or so, who believed that uh, the problem could be solved. Well, given the, the really severe stakes at play, did people have a sense that their governments, that multilateral institutions, that civil society, that others were doing enough to really confront and combat extremist ideologies and narratives that were causing this problem? Uh, most people didn't think that, that, that governments were doing enough, that this is a problem that needed attention, not getting the requisite attention. Uh, again, if you look at countries like France, and this was done uh, in August over the summer, uh, following several incidents that occurred in that, in that country, you could see fear and concern about the, the problem, as we talk in polling, literally, literally off the charts. But it was, it was really quite high uh, everywhere. And, and they felt that the, the governments were not doing uh, an adequate amount. And they also felt that extremist groups are, are really using the Internet. And by, by more than two to one thought that uh, the policing being done on the Internet by uh, tech companies uh, and others is, is inadequate for the problems that we're facing. So really a global, growing challenge with potentially catastrophic consequences if left unchecked. Uh, yes, unchecked. That, that, that's about it. But, yeah. but, but some optimism uh, that, that it could be curbed, that it's not too late, but that, that we're very much at a decision time for what we're going to do uh, as both an individual country and, and as, a, as a global society, what we're going to do uh, to face this threat. So of course, before you start talking about and thinking about actions, you have to understand what's causing the problem. So I know there were a number of questions about the causes. Overall, what were the main takeaways in terms of how people or why people think this is happening? Um, and did you see distinctions between the way people view the causes in Muslim-majority countries versus non-Muslim-majority countries? Well, 53% um, on average across the countries we surveyed uh, saw uh, uh, Islamic radical uh, fundamentalism as as the problem, and and that did vary uh, considerably by by country. Uh, but then uh, poverty, racism, uh, human rights abuses, all of those had uh, you know uh, the support in terms of being the problem of about twenty percent. Uh, so there was in fact a, a range of of issues and problems that were that were seen as causing violent extremism, uh, and and there were considerable differences uh, among some of the Western countries when we asked them specifically, do you think uh, that this is being caused by radical Islamic fundamentalism, or do you think it's being caused by people who are trying to make Islam look bad? 
And, and people in, say, the United States and France and the UK said it was, it was radical Islamic fundamentalism by between over 50 or 60 percent or more in, in that range. And it was really quite the, quite the opposite in the Muslim-majority countries, where they really perceived uh, that it was, it was people who were not part of Islam, but were in fact making Islam look bad. Uh, and you, and you, do, you do see this throughout the poll, that in, in the Western societies uh, where terrorism has been in the news, where these incidents have occurred, uh, opinions and attitudes uh, towards what being a Muslim might require are, are really quite different from what you see in the Muslim-majority societies and, and the attitudes. So you, you see that this, is, that this issue is also a very complex one in terms of public opinion, really, and it could be quite divisive uh, in terms of trying to create a greater sense of peace and harmony across these cultures and societies. So that's actually a really good point because if you have a very stark divide between the way that people in the West um, and in the East see the causes, does that mean that they aren't able to come together in terms of what kinds of strategies that would be most effective in addressing it? Well, I think one of the, the surprises out of the survey was that there was a strong unanimity uh, about, about what should be done by and large, uh, I mean, there were some differences and exceptions, but, but even though they couldn't really agree on the causes, uh, the terminology, uh, they still understood this to be a serious problem that required a comprehensive solution. Uh, and that's actually what brought people to together. Let's, let's start to do a lot more to solve the problem. Uh, while military power uh, is, an, is an important part of it, what you really see coming out of this poll is that that's not the only solution. So what other kinds of tools or tactics did survey respondents think would be effective or did they favor? So I, I think we gave them choices about solutions to the problem several different ways in the poll. First, we, we asked them in, in kind of groups, do you think military action is number one, economic actions, using uh, mass media and the internet, diplomatic actions? And 31% said military actions would be most effective, 22% economic, 15% using uh, the internet and social media, 13% uh, diplomatic actions, and actually 10% uh, NGOs. So, so uh, some people look at this chart and say, aha, you know, military's number one. But, but in fact, I, I thought military would be much higher. It would be 50 or 70%. Because we asked them, how do you deal with certain groups like ISIS and al-Qaeda? Military is the number one choice, but it's not the only choice. This is viewed as a, a problem uh, that, that, that can be handled only partially with military action and that needs a wide range of other strategies, both to deal with its spread and also to deal with uh, trying to get a global unanimity about the rejection of the violent part of these philosophies. And did anything else surprise you in terms of the kinds of measures that people were willing to take in order to address what they perceived as a really serious challenge? The most interesting thing is we, we gave people, I think, 21 different policy solutions. And <clears throat> it was hard to find anything that people said no to. Uh, obviously, there were things that you'd expect unanimity on. 92% said, look, we've got to crack down on the criminal activities of violent extremists that raise money. Uh, but 90% across the countries also supported all citizens and visitors to have ID cards. 
So something that's typically, I think, over the last couple of decades been fairly controversial, should we have centralized ID, I think the spread of violent extremism, I think, is pushing public opinion to be, to be yes. And then should we have community-led efforts to, to counter the extremist messages and ideology? Again, 90%. And, and that's as high as, as, say, 96% in countries like Indonesia. So it's, it's not that there was really disagreement about many of the, many of the solutions and asking the Internet companies to do a better job again. 90% on average, 91% in Egypt, 96% in Indonesia, 90% in the U.K., teaching why violent extremism is, is wrong in every school. I, I think that's something that resonated again uh, at, at 90%. And I know you also asked specific questions in terms of the narrative campaigns. What did you learn in terms of who people thought were the right messengers or the right types of messages that we should be exploring in order to counter extremist narratives and ideologies? Well, I think when it came to countering extremist ideologies, uh, we asked people whether you thought it should be celebrities or people from sports or, or government leaders. and. And interestingly, they turned number one to moderate religious leaders, that, that if more moderate religious leaders could participate, I think, in, in making, making clear you know, how they reject uh, violent extremism, that was really seen as the number one kind of communication channel because a lot of what they said is, look, uh, the mosques are very important, schools are very important. Uh, and the internet is very important. So when you kind of look at the at the three main channels that they saw as as possible uh, channels of recruitment uh, in terms of uh, education gone awry. Um, it, it, it was then no surprise that they would see the people would be most credible uh, with those with people with those people who could be radicalized uh, to be in the religious community. And while they thought there could be a role for celebrities and a little less so for sports figures. Uh, this was one of the most interesting lessons, I think, in the poll. And it is actually um, all the more interesting because oftentimes what you hear in expert circles is that we need to mobilize celebrities, that we need to mobilize sports figures, that we need to mobilize these people that are considered role models when maybe the solutions lie right there and influencers within their communities. Oh, I, I think there was no question that that, that People rejected the idea of efforts with, with a lot of flash. I mean, I think, I think ultimately they came down and said, look, there, there's, there's two or three avenues that are important. I think they, they clearly said, you know, hard power or military use was important, particularly in dealing with ISIS and al-Qaeda. But when you look at actually what they thought uh, was needed to be done with, with ISIS, a lot of people said it's very important to combat the ideology. And so when you look at what, what are you going to do to combat the ideology, it was pretty logical that they turned to schools, religious leaders, things like that. And, you, and you, you see them ultimately saying, look, there's military power. There's control measures that kind of find potential terrorists, like ID cards. And then there's, there's, there's a, a, a unanimity of, of, of message here that says to people, hey, this is wrong. And, and have we really mobilized civil society? to the extent that it could be. I think the poll says we have a lot of room to do that. So Mark, you discussed some of the dire consequences that people predicted would happen if violent extremism goes unchecked. 
Specifically, did survey respondents give you a better sense of what kinds of things they thought might happen? Well, I, I think you see in the survey the the dimensions of how people perceive this problem pretty clearly. And, and in a word, there's tremendous amount of global fear about what could happen if violent extremism is left unchecked. Uh, I think in terms of do people expect an attack in the next year? Or well, 60% of those in France uh, think that's the case, 50% in Turkey, 45% in, in the United States, uh, less so in, in India, uh, Egypt, and, and only 14% in China uh, thought that would uh, be the case. But when we ask people, do you think that violent extremist groups will eventually obtain weapons of mass destruction? 73% globally said that, 86% in France, 74% in the United States, 62% in the UK. So a majority of citizens in every country said that, that weapons of mass destruction are within the reach of these groups if it's left unchecked. So as a result of this fear and this anxiety, do you see that people are changing their behavior? Well, it was kind of interesting because about a quarter of people in the U.S. said that they were somewhat more fearful of visiting certain places, particularly going to airports uh, raised fears to 31 percent. But in other countries, it, it was even significantly higher, 43 percent uh, feared airports in, in Indonesia, 37 uh, percent in Turkey, 58 percent of people in Turkey uh, fear going to public places. So you, you see people are, are changing their activities and their actions out of the fear of terrorism today. It's pretty widespread. So oftentimes we hear about the influence of Saudi Arabia in terms of spreading extremist ideologies and narratives. I believe that you asked a question about whether Saudi Arabia exerts a positive influence or a negative influence. What did you find in the survey? Well, in some countries, particularly Western countries, uh, Saudi Arabia is seen as part of the problem and really suggests that uh, po for policymakers, they kind of look at our relationships to Saudi Arabia and say, is Saudi Arabia in fact part of the problem and, and what can we do to, to change that? Because a lot of people in the world think it is. Now, slightly different in the Muslim-majority countries, particularly among the most religious Muslims, they did not think Saudi Arabia was the problem. Quite the opposite. They thought Saudi Arabia was part of the solution, not the problem. And you do hear this playing out in the election campaign here in the United States. A lot more people talking about the role of Saudi Arabia, whether we should consider them an ally in countering violent extremism or part of the problem. So it seems like some of that sentiment is being picked up and reflected in this poll. Well, and obviously there was a controversy over the 9-11 report and over 9-11 itself and uh, because so many of the 9-11 hijackers were Saudis. Uh, so it's raised questions, and, and I think the, the Saudis are really going to have to address those questions uh, because certainly uh, globally here you can see a lot of people in a lot of countries really concerned about, about where they are and are they, are they doing what they can in order to curb violent extremism. So in the survey, we asked some questions about whether the EU should maintain its open border policies or curb those open border policies. What did you find when folks were asked that question? Well, I, I, I think the survey is a warning to those uh, in the EU government that, that they either have to 
reevaluate their policy or they're going to have to do a lot to defend it because what you really see is is when we ask the question, should the EU maintain an open borders policy or restrict movement between countries to deter violent extremism, 72% in France said restrict movement between countries more, 70% in the UK, 60% in the US. Uh, and I, I think personally, having looked at the polls on Brexit, I think it was very much about this issue and not so much about trade. And, and economics as it was, I think, about the concern that open borders can lead to the spread of terrorism. And I don't think that they're calling for complete restrictions, but again, you see this pattern, ID cards, vetting. The concern is that unvetted immigrants could lead uh, to more terrorist incidents, and, and you can see that quite clearly. I think people in Indonesia, Egypt, and Turkey uh, were much less supportive uh, of changing the policy, and, and I think that, that was obvious that they, they saw that they didn't want any changes in policy to lead to discrimination against citizens in, in those countries. So it is a difficult balancing act, uh, but given the attitudes that you see, the EU is going to have to act to assure people that they can have open borders and immigration consistent with public safety. So, Mark, we talked a bit about whether people think that military action is making a difference. What about when you ask them about programs that were meant to address joblessness or poverty or the narratives and ideologies of violent extremists? What did you find in terms of how people perceive whether those are effective or not effective? Well, remember right now, because people see the problem is increasing, they're unlikely to see anything as having been effective. And so even if when, you, when you look at military, which they, they by and large support uh, some uh, military action, uh, a plurality, 44% said, hey, it's not, it's not working, right? And it suggests that alone uh, is not enough. And 38% and said it's even creating a backlash. Uh, and then when, when you look at the impact of programs addressing poverty, joblessness, 46% um, said working, 37% not making a difference. But actually, interestingly, for those things that address the narratives and the ideology, 44% saw that effective, only 27% not. And, and it suggests that that's an area that we could pen, spend a lot more uh, time, effort, uh, and energy uh, working on, and that perhaps uh, that will make some of the other things all the more effective. Okay, so now we're going to talk a little bit about some of the questions in the survey about religious identity. I know that there were some questions around whether people felt like they were becoming more religious or less religious, whether they felt like they were being forced by different entities to express that religiosity more consistently or more frequently. What did you find in terms of the questions that we asked around the centrality of faith in people's lives? Well, uh, we did a very interesting series of questions asking people uh, what was their faith, how, how central was it to their life, and, and whether or not they feel they're getting more or, or less religious. And remember that, that even in times when people are getting le less religious, some people may report, hey, I'm getting more, because it's generally been seen as a socially desirable thing. And, and, and obviously in, in, in some of the countries, uh, Egypt and uh, Indonesia, uh, really almost 90%, about 90% in those countries, said that religion is the core of their personality uh, and the world. 58% uh, in, in Turkey, 55% um, in, in 
India and 47 percent uh, in the United States said religion is at, is at the core. And the United States actually 22 percent said they're getting more religious, 12 percent less, even though when I look at, at broader surveys, it looks ac like actually particularly the, the, the millennial generation is actually getting somewhat less religious. And uh, r religion was, was least uh, seen in, in China. Only, only tw 22 percent said it was at their core and only 2% uh, participated in daily uh, religious activity uh, compared to 28% uh, of Americans. Uh, and then uh, the UK also, 20% uh, said religion was at the, at the core. Uh, so you see a pretty wide variation between countries in 20 to 30% where religion was a part of the identity to up to many of the Muslim majority countries where the majority if not almost all of them, said that religion was an important part of their, their, daily, their daily life. Uh, which also brings a really interesting question to how much understanding and common understanding there really is across different religions. And Mark, you mentioned that there are different views of religion and a real gap in the way that different faiths understand each other. What did you find in terms of how people think that they understand Islam in particular and what that means for what they think is required for those who are Muslim? Well, one of the most uh, fascinating series of questions that we asked in the poll really was we asked people how familiar they were with the Quran, had they memorized passages, and, and obviously that varied from uh, Egypt where 85% said they'd memorized passages to the U.S. where 1% were Muslim even though 4% said they they memorize passages. Because uh, we then asked the countries, what does the Quran require? Right? And even, even though there was very limited understanding uh, and knowledge of the Quran in the US, uh, most Americans had very definite opinions about what the Quran requires. So 70% said it requires them to cover their hair, 68% their full bodies, 55% for Sharia law to be the law of the country, and 38% said that it, it bans music, and 44% says it commands that women not be educated. Now, if I go to a country like, like Indonesia, the, the largest Muslim-majority country in the world, actually 83% agreed that women should cover their hair and 74% cover their bodies. But only 35% said Sharia law should be the law of the of the country, only 12% said it bans music, and only 4% said that it means that women should not be educated. So there's a huge difference in understanding of what the Quran requires between peop those people who presumably read the most Quran and those people who don't. So a lot of room for bridging the divide between what people think they know about Islam and what those who are um, Muslim know and practice. Well, I think this knowledge gap and this gap in understanding uh, what the Quran requires is where I think uh, moderate Muslim leaders really have to step in. That that right now, what's happening is since when when terrorism is is in the news, then the terrorists who are seen uh, in the Western societies as radical Islamic fundamentalists, but are seen by the Muslim majority countries as people who are trying to really do evil uh, against uh, Islam, it, that's the time when the moderate uh, community has to come forward and say, hey, this is not Islam, and to make that distinction harder, because what's happening is 
those in the West are getting harder and more difficult opinions about what Islam is and, and what it requires. So taking a step back and looking at the full results of this survey of the 8,000 people polled in the eight different countries, what struck you the most about the findings or what surprised you the most? Well, I think there are a couple of key things that, 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 that pop out. One is the extent to which people see this as a major global problem uh, right now because it could lead to destruction of the world but yet remain optimistic about it being solvable. The, the clear view in, in, that you can see in this poll between how people in the West have come to view the problem versus people in majority Muslim countries and how those differences, if not really understood well, uh, could lead to more conflict. Uh, and, and then the most important finding, though, I think is that, look, military was seen as an important action, particularly against al-Qaeda and ISIS, but not the only action that a comprehensive strategy was really needed and that we really needed to bring into play here much more extensively. I mean, if I were to guess right now the budgets in, in a country like the U.S. between military uh, in terms of combating violent extremism and uh, soft power or, or other efforts is probably 1,000 to 1. Uh, but, but this poll suggests that, that the, the budgets and the efforts and the amount of time we spend has got to be more balanced and that we've got to be more creative in terms of mobilizing communities against this thing if we were to defeat it uh, before, uh, before it goes the other way. Mark, I really want to express my gratitude um, to you for being on this podcast, but also for your consistent and considerable and generous support for the commission for doing the survey, which I think has really provided unique insights that no other poll has. Um, but also, of course, for being on the podcast today. So thank you so much. Thank you. I'm glad to have it. And I, I do think the poll underscores what a serious problem this is and what we've got to do to solve it and, and how public opinion is not the answer, but something that really we have to look at and understand as we approach this. For our listeners, we have the full results of the survey on our website, www.csis.org.